We're going to be looking at the uh, same passages that we looked at last week. We're going to be reading verses 42 through 47 this morning. And the word says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. God of wonders, you are holy. And uh, Lord, we come here every week, Father, uh, to learn about your holiness and to try to get a grasp on all that you are. Father, this Christian life, so often we make it about uh, what you can do for us or what you have done for us, but Lord, this is about you. And as we gather this morning, Lord, to hear what the early church was shaped and defined by, Lord, uh, we gather here, Lord, to learn how you are shaping and defining us here at Harbin's. And I thank you, God, that you are uh, pressing hard, Lord, and peeling away some layers and stretching us, God, to areas that we might not necessarily be comfortable in. Uh, But we praise you for that, Lord, because we grow, Lord, through your stretching. We grow through your refining. And I pray, Lord, that we will be people who are refined by your word, refined by your truth. Father, I thank you for the word that you have already placed on Pastor Steve's heart to deliver this morning. And Lord, he's the vessel by which you speak to us through your word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you'll speak clearly to us this morning, God, as you always do. And our hearts and our minds will be receptive and willing recipients of what you have for us. Father, thank you for this time this morning we can gather. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you are pleased with our worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Peter. In 1987, um, I was living in Ecuador as a missionary kid, and um, some of you have probably heard this story before, but I was laying on my bed watching TV in Spanish. Believe it or not, I was watching Three's Company in Spanish, dubbed over. It was just as annoying in Spanish as it was in English. And I'm watching TV, I can remember it like it was yesterday, and all of a sudden my bed began to shake just kind of shake back and forth. And I thought our dog had jumped up onto the bed like she had done hundreds of times before and it it shook the bed as I was sitting there. So I looked down at my feet and my dog's not there and the bed's still shaking. And I look and the curtains are shaking as well. And I realized that this wasn't just a normal shaking. Something was going on. Matter of fact, um, about 60 miles north northeast of Quito where we were living, there was a 6.1 earthquake happening at that very moment. And so the whole house was just sort of swaying and everything was shaking. And, and it alarmed us. It, it rattled us. Um, and so I went back to bed that night. I was already a little on edge after that earthquake um, had hit. It was um, very scary. And in the middle of the night, I don't remember what time it was, this time I awoke and my bed wasn't just shaking. It was literally just felt like it was jumping on the ground. And this time, it wasn't just felt like the house was swaying. It felt like the house was bouncing. And you could hear just things falling off shelves and stuff. And this time, a 6.9 earthquake had hit a little bit closer than the previous earthquake. And the whole house was just, and there was this noise. And I went running down the hallway and we got under a door frame. And it was one of the scariest moments of my life because there's absolutely nothing you can do in an earthquake. It's not like you can run from it. It's you just it's just happening all around you, and there's not much you can do. And um, and we got a phone call almost immediately. We had just moved into the house where we were at, and we had gotten a phone call from our our former neighbors because just a month prior we had lived in a 13-story high um, apartment complex on the on the eighth story of that building. And our neighbors called us and said, "Can we come to ground level?" <laughs> they wanted to come and stay with us for a few nights, and they did. 
And, uh, and the family that had moved in where we were at was, was my best friend. And he, he shared with me the story of how it felt in that building. And I had lived in that building. So I remember we had tremors, Quito's in, a, in, a, in the Andes Mountains on part of the, what they call the Ring of Fire where there's lots of earthquakes. And so we had been in the building when there had been tremors before. And whenever there's a tremor, just, you could just feel the whole building just sort of sway. You could look out your window and see the horizon just kind of moving as you're sitting there in the, in the building. And, uh, and Tim, my best friend, and our neighbors described that night when an earthquake hit. It wasn't just a tremor. It was an earthquake. They said the building was swaying so strong they had to hold the walls in order to be able to stand on their feet. As they made their way, obviously couldn't go down the elevator, down the stairs um, to get all the way down to, to ground level. And I remember as a kid thinking about that. Man, why did they make the buildings where they, you know, isn't that kind of scary? You know, a building that sways. But I learned that it's actually constructed to sway. That's the way the buildings are built. A well-built building. Matter of fact, some of the buildings in Quito collapsed. Not a lot of them. But over a thousand people died, especially near the epicenter in um, a place called uh, Napo. And that town was leveled and they had bad earth, um, mudslides and stuff. And most of it was very poor impoverished and the buildings out there were not built well but in Quito which was a little bit more modern most of the buildings were built to withstand earthquakes so they were made to sway they were made so that when the tremors came when the the earth shook when everything was just going crazy like that that they would survive although it was scary and they were swaying back and forth and I was thinking about that as I was thinking about where we're at as a church right now. And I, honestly, I feel like we're swaying. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm having to hold on to the walls. And, and I believe that for whatever his purpose is, God has sent a sovereign tremor upon our church. And it feels like everything's just being shaken right now. There's all kinds of things many of you are not even aware of that's just happening right now. And and it's not coincidence, because things don't happen like this by coincidence, but there's families struggling, there's marriages struggling, there's financial challenges, there's all kinds of just challenges right now that's happening uh, to a lot of people in our church, and it feels like the earth is just shaking right now. And so as I think about a well-structured church, to me it's no coincidence that we came to this passage to end this series called the Jesus Tribe at this time in our church. Because this passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, I've entitled it the DNA of the Jesus Tribe. And the Jesus Tribe is the phrase we're using to describe the church, the family of God. The DNA of the Jesus Tribe. But really this could be the foundation or the structure of the Jesus Tribe. And last week we looked at four things that this church was devoted to. And I believe... And, and all I can do is base this on past experience and church history as you look back at the church. Following periods of shakeup, which lead God's people, hopefully, to serious introspection and um, repentance. And serious falling on their face before God, saying, God, what are you up to? God, what are you doing in my life? What do you want to change here? Following those times it seems like God then brings a season of fruitfulness and revival. So that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying. That's what I believe God is doing here. He's sending, as the scripture speaks of, his refining fire. And, and right now, in the midst of the fire, it's painful. It hurts. And there's this refining fire going on. But the purpose behind the fire is good. The swaying of the building is good. You don't want to be in a 13-story building that doesn't sway during an earthquake. Those are the buildings that collapse, that crumble, that kill. You want to be in a building that swings. So the swaying is good. And so in the midst of what we're feeling right now, and God and his sovereignty has allowed things to happen here, and this swaying, it may not feel good right now, but it is good. It is good. I'm convinced it's good because I believe in God's promises that he works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And Lord willing, perhaps the Lord is stirring up a revival here at Harbin's and beyond. Last week we looked at four things that, based upon this passage that the church was devoted to. These are things that we should be devoted to as well. It's very easy to lose your focus and forget the things you're supposed to be 
devoted to. It happens all the time. It happens in, in all areas of life, but it happens in the church as well. There's four things that the first church was devoted to. This is the first text we have about the New Testament, New Covenant church. Any kind of description in Scripture, it begins here. And the four things we see that they were devoted to, it says, first of all, they were devoted to the, to the importance, the primacy, the authority of the gospel message of the Bible. It says here that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. The Bible is the apostles' teachings. What we have in the Scripture is God's infallible, inerrant word, which is the apostolic teaching given to us, given down to us from the apostles. And all of Scripture speaks of the gospel. Therefore, this book, this Bible, is to be central in what we do as a church. So they were devoted to apostolic teaching, which means they were devoted to Scripture. Second thing we saw is they were devoted to sharing their lives together. And they were sharing life together with other believers in unity and in fellowship. It says that they were devoted to fellowship here in the passage. And fellowship is more than eating, as we discussed last week. We're going to have a, what we call our monthly fellowship meal. But it's very possible to eat food with one another and not be fellowshipping. Matter of fact, some of the tremors that we're going through right now simply expose to me and should cause all of us to repent that there's such a smiley surface level relationships here in this church that we actually don't get deep into each other's lives. And therefore, what we do down there, if you sit there and smile and eat supper, to eat dinner together and just, you know, yeah, shoot the breeze, yeah, life is great. And then it's not really great. There's really problems. There's real pain going on. That's not fellowship then. That's called small talk. We should change it to the small talk meal. Fellowship. That's what they were devoted to. And of course, fellowship starts with fellowship with Christ. Because you can't have Christian fellowship apart from union with Christ. And we saw also that they were, they were dedicated here, according to Scripture, to the breaking of bread. And we talked about how that's cross-centered Christ-ordained worship and the importance of the Lord's Supper and my conviction that we need to be doing it more often. But also all the things that Christ ordained for worship, which is not only the Lord's Supper, but, but baptism. And everything that we do as a church in this worship service, from the songs to uh, prayers to any videos we might use, is, is to be centered upon the cross. And we saw, lastly, that they were devoted to the prayers. Consistent, concerted, coming before God in prayer. And so as I mentioned last week, this passage is sort of broken into two pieces. There's that piece, that very first verse, Acts 2:42, which gives us those four devotions, and the rest of the passage breaks down into five outcomes, five fruit or results that come from that devotion. So if you look closely here, I want you to see that the word and here starts four different or five different uh, results. The word and here kind of gives us a clue that, that Luke here is talking about something new here. So here we go. I'll start in verse 43. It says, And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So that's the first outcome. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's the second one. Third one, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's the next one. Then the fourth one, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And finally, the last part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't want us to confuse ourselves into thinking that these five things we're going to talk about today are things that we can somehow manufacture. These are things that happen in a church that's spirit-filled, experiencing spirit-led unity, fellowship, apostolic teaching, the things that we mentioned in the earlier part of this passage. So here's what I want to do. I want to break these down. I want to talk some more about these. But before we go any further, I want to pray. And I want to pray a prayer of confession because I don't believe we are this type of church. I honestly don't believe we're Acts 2, 42 through 47 church. So I want you to pray with me as we repent of that before we continue in this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now 
And God, we confess as a corporate body of believers, we confess that we are not an Acts 2, 42-47 church. There may be some things we are doing that resemble an Acts 2, 42-47 church, but for the most part, we are not this. And Lord, I start with myself, and I confess my sin, Lord, that I have not led us in the direction that we need to be in order to be an Acts 2, 42-47 church. So God, I ask your forgiveness of sins. And as a body, we repent, we turn, we turn from the things, Lord, that, that perhaps we, in our minds, consider to be what makes a church a healthy church or a good church or a cool church or a missional church, whatever cool, little, snappy adjective we want to put before the word church. The plain fact of the matter is our measuring stick is Scripture and Acts 2.42 through 47 leaves us wanting because we have failed to do these things in the way you would have us do it. So we confess our sin now, Lord, before we continue. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say something real quick before we continue with these five results. I want to mention the role of the Holy Spirit here, which should be obvious to us. But Christian devotion to these things that we mentioned earlier, okay, is enabled by the mutual possession of the Holy Spirit of God. These things that we're going to discuss today can only be said to have come out of the possession of the Holy Spirit. And those who possess the Holy Spirit are truly the children of God and are thus part of His church, the Jesus tribe. We've been talking about this Jesus tribe. What makes the Jesus tribe the Jesus tribe? And we mentioned it last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about the new covenant, is that the new covenant is different. This isn't about people just, I want to be part of a church. It's about the Holy Spirit coming and and, and, and indwelling a person and regenerating their heart so that they can confess their sin, repent of their sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus alone for the salvation of their for their salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Church life is a mutual existence and unity in Christ. Okay, and we are in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Romans twelve five says, So we, though many, are one body. In Christ and individually members of one another. Ephesians 2.22 says, In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So our unity is in Christ. It's not just a confession of faith. It's not just a, 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 that we're Baptist or that we like to eat Mexican food every few weeks or whatever else. Our, our unity is the Spirit of God. And if the Holy Spirit isn't there... Well, we can't expect to have any sort of unity whatsoever. We mentioned this some last week as we talked about the necessity of a regenerate membership. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to the promise. You are the Jesus tribe if you are in Christ. So to me this all goes without saying, but I say it as a reminder of what the church really is. It's people that are saved in Christ, being sanctified in Christ, living their Christian life in Christ. So please don't hear these things that I'm saying about the church today and say, yes, we can do this. We can do this in our strength. You can't do these things. Only Christ can do these things in you through His Holy Spirit. Do these things in us through His Holy Spirit. So the first thing I want us to see, as we think about a church with proper devotions, okay, the Jesus, okay, that's, that's, I'm sorry, I'm bringing up the points from last week. Let me get past these real quick. A church with proper devotion is a church, number one, of reverent fear of God. Verse 43, and all, came upon every soul, and many, signs, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And awe came upon every soul. Now, if you're like me, you read this text, you say, well, of course there's awe coming upon them because there's signs and wonders being done by the apostles, right? And that, that's all producing. Well, there were signs and wonders being done through the apostles, and, and these signs and wonders were done to confirm the gospel message. As the gospel was brought to them, 
It was a confirmation that this is God's message. It was a confirmation that these men, these apostles, were, were supernaturally gifted to carry on and continue the ministry of Jesus Christ because they were doing signs and wonders like Jesus had been doing. So these were to confirm and to demonstrate the ongoing ministry of Christ. They were not normative. Apostolic miracles possessed a special, unique power to confirm the gospel message. They're not normative. They weren't normative then, even, even though they happened in the church, especially at the beginning. But as the church grew, okay, the apostles were limit, limited in number, and these signs and wonders didn't continue in the way that they did in the first part of the book of Acts. You can even see that in the book of Acts. You can see that as you get to books like First and Second Timothy, where God requires more structure in the church than perhaps they even had at the beginning here, because now there's elders and teachers in the church to lead the church, and the apostles, the apostles are beginning to die off, and with them, the apostolic signs and wonders. Now let me say, though, I am not a cessationist. <clears throat> Excuse me. A cessationist. What's a cessationist? That means someone who believes that all miracles have ceased. I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe all miracles have ceased. I'm not a cessationist for a couple of reasons. First of all, I lived overseas where it seems like there's a whole lot more supernatural activity than even here in the United States. Uh, Secondly, because I believe that God can pretty much do anything he wants to do. And if he wants to do a miracle at any time, he can do a miracle at any time. So I'm not a cessationist, a strict cessationist. But I also believe that these signs and wonders that that were part of the early church were something that don't normally happen in the church. Matter of fact, they were apostolic signs and wonders. They don't happen at all anymore in the church. But God can still heal. He can still do amazing and miraculous things. But this awe here that the Scripture speaks of, this awe that came upon every soul, it's not dependent upon the signs and wonders. Remember, the signs and wonders were done to what? Confirm this message. And as we preach through Acts, and we'll be getting back to it before too much longer, as we've preached through Acts, hopefully you've seen that it's been the gospel teaching that has left people in awe. Okay, the, the best example I can think of is when uh, Paul and Barnabas go on their very first missionary journey, and they go to Cyprus, I believe, and they're in Cyprus, and they, they, they're there, and there's, the, there's this magistrate there on Cyprus who's being led to the Lord, and, and there's the, he's got this magician, he's got this, um, this magician who's trying to lead uh, him astray, and who's trying to kind of... Uh, uh, contradict what Paul and Barnabas are saying. And Paul looks at him and tells him he's going to be mute or he's going to be blind, I'm sorry. And the guy goes blind like that and he's having to be led by the hand. And, and it says that this magistrate was, was amazed at their teaching. It wasn't necessarily the signs and the wonders. It was the teaching. It's the gospel that leaves people in awe. Because when you have a proper understanding of who you are, when I have a proper understanding of who I am and I understand how sinful I am and I understand that I'm a rebel and that I'm a fool and that I deserve an eternity in hell, when I have an understanding of that, and I think part of the problem in the church today, thanks to wonderful, I'm saying that sarcastically, books like Rob Bell's new book, part of the problem in the church today is we have minimized how bad we are and how bad hell is. And if we understand how bad we are and how bad hell is, when we think about the gospel and what Jesus has done, and that we've been freely saved, not based upon anything we've done, but only by his will, it should blow us away. We should be left in awe and wonder. But I don't think we, we're a church in America today that has much awe and wonder because we've watered down the gospel so much there's nothing to be awed over. It's not that big a deal. Do we understand what a big deal the gospel is? If you don't, then ask God to show you in his word how wretched you are. And I am. And we all are. Don't let there be even a hint in your soul of, I'm not that bad. I deserve at least, you know, at least a small corner of heaven. You deserve, and I deserve, a big field in hell. And if we understand that, then it creates awe. A reverential fear of God should be part of our experience, even without signs and wonders. We should hold a wonder that this, this, this gospel has been brought to us, that this message of truth, that this good news is available to us. 
It should leave us in awe and wonder. And then not only that, as we look at the, the entirety of God's Word, we have written down for us the signs and wonders. And we look at these things and we say, oh my goodness, look at God. Look how amazing He is. Awe and wonder in the church should be a direct result of faithful exposition and teaching and proclamation of this book here. If we faithfully, exegetically teach and preach this book, then we should fear. We should fear. We should be able to come here and sing these songs like we sang today. And we, You should not be able to sing, Holy is the Lord, God Almighty, or God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy. You are holy. We should not be able to sing those songs flippantly. If we really understand how holy he is. But I'm afraid they've just become songs we're just familiar with. And we don't come in awe and in fear of God. We should be in awe and fear and wonder of him because he's God. If you believe what the book says about him, you will fear him. Let me read you some passages we think about fearing God this morning. Hebrews 12, 18 and following. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing here, let me kind of give some context. Remember, Hebrews is an amazing book. If you want to understand the Old Testament, if it's kind of confusing to you, if you're like what I heard Vody Bauckham say once when he first became a Christian, he said the God of the left side of the book didn't seem like the same God on the right side of the book. If, if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to really, really meditate upon Hebrews. Because I think that's the purpose of that book, is to help us connect the dots. And so... The author of Hebrews always goes back to the Old Testament and refers to things that Israel was going through, going through and shows it how they were shadows and types and signs of the new covenant realities in Christ. In Hebrews 12, 18, he's referring back to when the people of Israel came to the mountain of God as he was giving his law to them and, and how they, they heard his voice and they were scared. And So listen to what he says. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. That was what they saw on this mountain, the Israelites. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Do you remember the Israelites when they heard the voice of God? They said, we, we, can't, we can't hear his voice lest we die. And they asked Moses to intercede for them. Verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses saw, that Moses said... I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in heaven and to God and the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteousness of righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the author of Hebrews is saying was what they had and what they saw you actually are coming into a bigger, greater reality of that. So he says in Hebrews 12, 25, so, you, so that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking, shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Stop right there. What is acceptable worship? So, I'm thinking... Uh, I, I, these Israelites, they could not worship God the way they should. They were sinners, and they were in awe, and they were in fear as they saw the mountain. Yet we have a greater reality in Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem belongs to us. We are part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. If you're part of the Jesus tribe, you're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. We are secure in Christ. And so what is acceptable worship of a God who has saved us through his own son's blood? What's acceptable worship? Hebrews tells us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming 
fire. And Hebrews is a book of warning in so many ways to examine yourself lest you fall away. Over and over, the author in Hebrews is hammering us to examine ourselves, examine yourself. Those who persevere to the end, those are the ones who are truly saved. Those who fall away weren't ever saved. And therefore we come here in reverence and awe. And if the gospel doesn't continue to stir up awe and reverence in us, we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Are we just going through the motions here? Is this just something we do? Because if it's just something we do, we may be in for a shock when that consuming fire comes back and those who are in his kingdom cannot be shaken. But there's going to be, I think, hundreds and hundreds of thousands who thought they were in his kingdom because they sang the right songs, went to the right church, believed the right doctrine, but in reality they were not part of the unshakable kingdom of Christ. There was no awe, there was no fear in them. They just lived a Christian life that they thought they needed to live. So we are to always be inspecting our hearts and asking ourselves, does this reverence and awe exist here? Knowing that he's a consuming fire and that we are sinners, we are therefore to be in awe over what he's done for us, our redemption, our adoption, our salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. It's amazing how all these verses just tie in so well with the Jesus tribe. It says this, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant, my friends. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. He's talking about separate, being separate from the world. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Continuing the next verse, which actually is in chapter 7 of Second Corinthians. It says, since we have these promises, the things we've just read, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Why does God require fear and awe and reverence when we come worship Him? Because holiness cannot come about without fear and awe. Are you struggling to be holy in your life? I guarantee you, if you're struggling to be holy in your life, there is a part of you, or maybe all of you, that does not fear God because the fear and awe of an almighty, consuming God drives us to holiness. It drives us to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 came right before the passage we just read a minute ago. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You will not see God without holiness. Period. And that doesn't mean that we're saved by works. It simply means that if you are in Christ, then Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is doing a work in you of sanctification, and you are pursuing, and you are desiring holiness, and you look at God, and you look at what He's done, and you look at His truth, and you want more and more holiness. And the Bible says that we must be holy because He's holy, and if we're going to be in heaven, we will be holy people. We cannot see God without holiness. So if you are not growing in holiness every Day and every year of your life, you've got to look into your heart and say, what's going on here? What's going on here? And having been made children of God and being called to holiness, which is brought about by a fear and awe, we are obviously therefore to rebuke sin in the church and thus bring about fear. 1 Timothy 520. Same word for all, phobos, which is where we get our word phobia from, the Greek word, for fear, is the same word here as the word awe in the passage we've been reading this morning from Acts. 1 Timothy 520 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Sin is to be rebuked in the church. And I have been just hammered by this this week, this text. A good brother and friend really called me to task, task this week on this weakness in me. Basically, these aren't his words, but basically he said, you're bold in the pulpit, 
but you're weak in the office. In other words, I stand up here and I'm bold. But when I need to confront sin head-on, one-on-one, maybe even bring it before the church, I get weak because I'm a sinner and I'm a people-pleaser. Which means I don't fear and awe God enough myself. I am as a pastor am to be stirring up fear and awe in the church by rebuking sin. It's supposed to be part of my job. First Timothy was written to a young pastor named Timothy. Therefore, my beloved Philippians 2.12, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear, phobos, same word again, and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent. There's that holiness again. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 16. So we see this fear and this awe, and in Philippians, that passage right there, the direct context around that passage is the unity of the church. And I don't think we can have good unity in the church without fear and awe. We really can't. If we don't fear our God, then we're not going to fear offending our brother. If we don't fear our God, we're not going to fear talking behind each other's back. We're not going to fear a snide remark, a judgmental comment. Philippians 2 calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And that text is in the midst of Paul talking about the church experiencing unity. So the next, it brings us to our next point, to be honest with you. A church with proper devotion is a church, number two, of spirit-enabled oneness. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were together, they were united, they were one. They had all things in common. John MacArthur says they they possessed not only spiritual unity, but practical oneness as well. It's one thing to, uh, I think we all like to talk about unity, and we keep it kind of on the spiritual level. You know, we're one in Christ, we're one. But when it gets down, down and dirty, and it has to be fleshed out in a practical way, well, I don't know. Yeah, we're one, but you know what? That's my car. I can't lend it to that person. Yeah, we're all one, but you know, I've really been saving up for this item here, and I can't really let go of this money right now. Yeah, we're all one, but you know, my show's coming on tonight, and that person in the hospital will still be in the hospital in the morning. We're all one, but we're all one, but the question is, is it fleshed out in a very practical oneness, as John MacArthur said, where here they had all things in common? Now, this wasn't communal living. Instead, it was a community perspective on life. It has to do with the way they viewed their stuff. My stuff is no longer only my stuff. It belongs to all the brothers and sisters as well. And that's very hard to do. When it says here that they they came together, it's not just talking about a physical location where they all gathered together. They did do that as well, but this word together is not just referring to that. It's referring to having a sane mind. It's referring to having the same call and the same purpose. It's like the way we use the word together today as well. Okay, Um, You know, you watch a sports game or something and maybe you hear the coach say something like, well, you know what, we just just weren't all together today, you know. We weren't all on the same page. You say, well, you were all together, you were on the same field. Well, we know we use the word together to refer to more than just being physically in one location. There's a oneness of mind, of spirit. And so this is what Luke is speaking of here when he says they had all things together. And then all things in common. This word common is koina, which is the root word from koinonia. Okay, the word fellowship that we talked about last week. Okay, so, so having all things in common is very much related to fellowship. Fellowship means letting go of me and embracing Christ's community. I was going to show a video this morning that I decided not to because it was too silly. But maybe many of you have seen it. The, the Me Church video. Have you seen the, church, the Me Church video? It's really funny. And, and, I, and I don't mind showing funny videos because I don't mind humor because God created humor. Um, so I was going to show it this morning, but 
just overall where we're at as a church right now wasn't what we needed to see today. But in that church, it's kind of silly because people are talking about all what they want out of church. And we laugh at a video like that, but in reality, that's how people come. They come to church and what's in it for me? And, and, and fellowship is the exact opposite of that. It's letting go of me and embracing Christ's community. There's no room for little kings and lords of me in God's people. Instead, we each must abandon the thrones that we cling to so hard, abandon the thrones of our hearts, the thrones of our possessions, the thrones of our families. We abandon these thrones and sit at the throne of Jesus because he's the only one that belongs on the throne in our life and in our church, the only one. Koinonia fellowship is what we talked about last week, and it's letting go Loosening our grip on our stuff and on our life, and instead extending our hands to our brothers in fellowship. Philippians 2, I've already mentioned this passage. Let me read you some of the other verses from the beginning of Philippians 2. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, that word participation is fellowship, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That last line there, that last verse is very important. He then goes into one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture where we see the, the, this, this beautiful hymn of Jesus' uh, uh, condescension and coming down to the earth as a, as, as a man and, and going all the way to a slave's position and dying on a cross and then being exalted by, by God. But, but you, you look at this text here, and, and if you're like me, you look at this text and you say, okay, there's stuff in here i got to do. i, I got to be um, no rivalry. Okay, no rivalry. Okay, I'm trying not to rival anybody today. No conceit. All right. Humility, okay, I think I can do that. And, and we, we kind of have our checkoff list of what it means to be a good Christian, but the whole point is here, we can't do any of this. Not a, big, not a bit of it. It's only Christ that can do this. So we have to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The supply that we need to carry out this mission is not found in us, it's found in Christ Jesus. Romans twelve ten. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a lot of people weeping in our church right now. We need to weep with them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And the next result logically flows out of this one. Okay, Out of this oneness that views our stuff not as our stuff, but our possessions given up to Christ and available for Him to use however He wants in the church. Therefore, a church with proper devotion is also... A church of sacrificial benevolence. For it says in verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This does not mean that all the members of the church sold all their possessions. But it does mean that all the members of the church were willing to sell any possession in order to meet any need that might arise within the tribe. Any need as they might have. Possessions here is a word that usually refers to real estate. And the word personal belongings is a word that usually refers to other possessions that someone might have. So I think what Luke is saying is that nothing is too big and nothing is too small to be offered up to God for him to use however he so desires in the church. Because you know what? I think a lot of us are very comfortable with 10%. That's easy, to be honest with you. I hope it's easy. Pray that God will make it easy if it's not easy. 10% is easy. It's beyond the 10%. It is that piece of property. It is that big thing we have that when God begins to tug on us and say, all right, give that to me so that I can use it however I want to use it in the church. 
that we just sort of hold on. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure? Do you know how, do you know how much I paid for this, Lord? And the Lord says, do you realize that the cattle on a thousand hill belong to me? And so does that thing and everything else you possess, it belongs to me. So they were selling. They were selling their stuff. This, this verb here, we're selling, is an imperfect tense, meaning that it was an ongoing, recurring, continual practice. This tells us two things. The fact that they were selling, and it's, it's an imperfect tense, tells us two things. Number one, that they were all, there were always needs in the church, and that we must always be ready to meet them. Okay, there's always going to be needs in the church. There's not going to be some point we get to goes, wow, boy, we got it all together. Everybody, there's no needs here. Part of, it, part of this fellowship is that there's always needs in the church. So we always need to be ready, this continual practice of selling what we have if we need to, to meet needs. And number two, it also shows us that this was not some commune. Where, where to come into the church you had to give all your stuff to the church. Like what happens in, in a lot of occults and stuff. When you, you come you have to give them all your possessions. The fact that this was an ongoing thing just showed that people were choosing, as needs arose, to give and sell stuff as God stirred their hearts to do it. It was an ongoing thing. Acts 4.32, another awesome text about the early church, says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There's that oneness. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There's that commonality. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel message. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. What that means is they gave it over to Christ. They laid it at the authority of the church. The apostles were the authority of the church. They laid it at their feet. That means you can't give to the Lord or give to the church and say, I really want it used for these purposes. You know, I'm going to give a bunch to the church here, but I really want us to get some better video screens up there, Pastor Steve. No, that's not how we give. We give and say, God, whatever you want, however you want to use it. Verse 33 here also tells me, when it's right in the middle of this talking about their having everything in common and their oneness and then their generosity, right in the middle of that section is verse 33 where it talks about the gospel, the great power of the apostles as they gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells me that the gospel drives us to sacrificial generosity. The gospel proclaims a treasure that makes all other treasures pale in comparison and thus loosens our grip on the stuff that our flesh so greatly desires. When we consider and meditate upon the gospel, I guarantee you, your hands will begin to let go of the stuff as we consider the treasure we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.1 we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Dedication is first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us is what they said here. This is exactly what we see in the next section of this text as well. Let me go to verse 4. A church of proper devotion is a church of dedication to the Lord and to one another. Verse 46 and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is the, we talked about last week, the Christ-ordained, cross-centered worship. And we, we talked about last week, genuine fellowship. And that's what we see here in this text. Day by day, their worship and their fellowship were not limited to one day of the week. Their worship and their fellowship were not limited to one day of the week. It was a continual reality. Now, this doesn't necessarily, this phrase day by day, it's just kind of a general phrase. It doesn't necessarily mean that sequentially every single day they were doing these things. It just means that they were doing it often, day by day. We see the same text at the bottom, same word at the bottom when it talks about the, um, 
people being added to their number day by day. It's a general phrase to refer to a constant reality within the church. It is more often than once a week. The church did begin to set aside one day in particular for worship, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. But we're not limited to that. Acts 27 is where we see uh, a real good evidence that the first day of the week was the week that they gathered. Sunday was the week they gathered to break bread and to, to worship. Large gatherings of believers in corporate worship is what we see in this text. It says they were attending the temple together. A place of unified worship, a place of unified witnessing. And small intimate gatherings and fellowships in the home. It says they were breaking bread in their homes. A place of unified living, a place of unified accountability. They understood that the people of God must meet together, must gather together in large groups and in small groups. The word ecclesia, which is the word church, you may be familiar with the word ecclesia. The word ecclesia not only means called out ones, but it also carries the Old Testament theme with it because the word ecclesia was used in the Old Testament as well. The Hebrew word that's translated into the Septuagint, it was always translated ecclesia. And it's the word not only for called out people, it also means God gathering his remnant. Gathering his chosen ones, gathering his children together. So the church also, that word ecclesia also means gathering. It requires a gathering together. And again, like we said last week, there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. If you're part of the church, then you gather with other believers. That's what it means to be part of a church. Hebrews 10, said, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to, good, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When he refers to breaking of bread here, it, it may refer just to meals, but I believe it's referring, once again, just as it did earlier in this text, to the Lord's Supper. I think Luke is referring to communion here. And we see that their attitudes, they had glad and generous hearts. They had joy. They had generosity because the Spirit of God was moving in them. They were exalting God and they were exulting in God they were praising him, and their fellowship was such that the onlooking world looked at them in honor and respect, having, says here they were having favor with all people. So one of the best ways we can do outreach in the church is to have a way about us, to have a unity about us, to have a sincerity, a sincerity about us in worship and in fellowship that the outside world looks at, and when they see it, they'll say, hey, something special is going on there. It's one of our best Methods of, of, of outreach is simply to be what God calls us to be as a church. John 17, 20, Jesus prayed for those, it says here, his words, who will believe in me through their, through their word, talking about the apostles' word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. One method of Helping the world believe in Jesus is to have the unity in the fellowship and the type of worship that Acts 2 speaks of. Which leads me to my final conclusion. My final point, I mean. It's number five. A church with proper devotion is a church of evangelism. Verse 47b, the second half of the verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice who does the adding. It says the Lord added to their number. God is sovereign in evangelism. God is sovereign in church growth. But please do not mistake this to mean that they were passive and they did nothing. And that God just added people without them being witnesses. The whole book of Acts speaks to the contrary. You can't come to that conclusion unless you just read that verse out of the context of the whole book of Acts. Because the whole book of Acts speaks of this going. The difference between the church, the Jesus tribe, and Israel, a foreshadowing of the church, is that Israel was an attractional worship. They had the temple. The temple was in a spot. It was in a city. 
and people were to come to that spot. It was an, an attractional come worship here. The church has flipped that upside down. The temple is now us. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us, and we are to go out. The whole book of Acts speaks of this. The Spirit was given to create oneness in Christ, not just for no reason. It enables us to be a unified force for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All these devotions, all these marks of a healthy church make the Jesus tribe a people who will go and share. The apostles' teaching, the gospel, was the message given to the apostles to be taken to the end of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, you're all familiar with this passage, but let's read it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Fellowship in Christ and with each other becomes, as we've already mentioned, a powerful witness to the world, and it becomes a means of equipping believers for their task of sharing the gospel with the world. Breaking of bread, communion, reminds us of the gospel message of the new covenant, and we do gather in cross-centered, Christ-exalting worship, and then we scatter so that we can change the world. Now think about this. If the gospel, the full gospel, isn't the center of what we're teaching, then our scattering becomes meaningless. If you come here, and, and let's say we become a church that's much more uh, topical and self-help oriented. You know, I mean, we could do that. Okay, there is a place and a time for a topical message here or there. But let's say it's just kind of self-help, which is what happens in a lot of churches today. If you come and you gather just for self-help, you're not going to scatter to help the world. You're not going to scatter with the gospel. You may scatter and say, hey, come to my church. They can really help you handle your money better. Come on. You may do that. But people don't need to know how to handle their money. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. The gospel is what transforms lives. And they were a church committed to prayer. Our prayers should not only be for our brothers and sisters in here. We should be praying for Christ to be exalted and proclaimed outside of these walls. We should be praying for the lost. For a while there, I think it was after we did those early messages and acts, I encouraged people to put names of lost people on those blue slips when you brought up prayer requests. And for a while there, we were getting a lot of those. And I remember, because I, I usually pick up the ones that are left over, and, and praying for people we know that are lost. And that's just sort of died off now. We're not doing that anymore. We need to be praying for our lost friends and relatives and neighbors. So what is this gathering for? This gathering is to exalt Christ. It's for the edification of the saints, so that when we go from here, we'll become gospel emissaries, ambassadors, if you will, into a foreign land. This is like the embassy. You are the ambassadors, and the world is your assignment. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, all of us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All believers are called to this task. At Pentecost, the Spirit fell on the apostles and the pastors. Now what did it say? It said the Spirit fell on all of them. And it also said they all began to speak. And in that occasion, they spoke in languages so that all these people from the diaspora, all these Jews that had come in for the festival could hear in their language. But the Spirit fell on all of them, and they all spoke. All believers are called to this task. Although the apostles did go about spreading the gospel message, and although elders and 
and teachers in the church are called to go about spreading the gospel message. We've seen in Acts already that it was the ordinary lay people who were just as responsible for the spread of the gospel. Remember Stephen and Philip? Stephen and Philip were not apostles. They were not elders. They were called up as servants in the church. Stephen boldly goes out and proclaims the gospel. Philip does the same, leading people to the Lord. Acts 8.1, it says that a lot of the church was scattered, but the apostles remained in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 8.4 we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The apostles didn't get scattered, just the people. And the people went about preaching the word. Peter needed a vision from God to go witness to a Gentile centurion named Cornelius and his family. But we read in Acts 11, 20-21 that some unnamed disciples just began witnessing to Gentiles in Antioch. It's the unnamed. It's the lay people. Those are the ones who have the tremendous impact in the world. And it can happen in a thousand ways. You can go out in an organized fashion and knock on doors. You can go out. I know Peter and Bobby would love to have more guys out with them uh, witnessing on the streets. You can go out and do it in an organized fashion. But it should happen every day in, 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 in conversations with neighbors, in conversations with coworkers, connecting with our parents who might be lost, with friends, with family who needs the gospel. Looking for the gospel to be, to be a, a bri- looking for bridges to build as we talk to people so that we can share the gospel with them in some sort of way with our hairstylists, with telemarketers, with waiters, with karate teachers, and hundreds of other people that God sovereignly puts in our path each day. That's what we're to be doing. And we have failed. Four devotions, four outcome, five outcomes. One church, one people serving one Savior, Jesus Christ. So my last question is for us to ask how we're doing. And to look at Acts 2 and ask ourselves how we've dropped the ball. Let this text be a mirror. Are we secure during this time of swaying that our church is built on the right foundations? I'm convinced part of the reason for the swaying is to get our attention Am I alone in thinking that God has a lot of work to do here at Harbin's? Am I alone in thinking that God has a lot of work to do in me? Are you as convicted as I am? Only you can answer those questions. But I can just tell you right now where we're at and what's going on. Um, that God is doing this for a reason. And we've got to wake up and we've got to see what it is that he wants us to do. And so there's changes that need to be made. Individually, corporately, there's things we must do to be an Acts 2.42 church. But don't let us fall into the trap and say, okay, let's have a meeting. Let's come up with a list. Let's do it. We're going to sign this person to fix this problem and this person to fix this problem. No, we get on our faces and we plead God for his spirit to move in a fresh way in our church. Because apart from the spirit, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. So let's finish by doing that. Let's pray. We're going to close our eyes in prayer. We are going to have a response song this morning. The song I chose was specifically because of what we're going through. We don't have Royce up here. Royce was filling in. And uh, Mark needed some time away this week. And so Royce was filling in at last minute. So we're going to pray. We're going to watch this song on video. It has the words on it. And we're going to sing this song. That's time to bring your offerings. It's time to bring your prayer requests. And after what I'm praying, I want us to conclude with a special time of prayer as well. But let's just pray right now, and then we'll sing this song together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now. We plead, Lord, for your spirit to move in us. And God, I know, Lord, that uh, you have a desire to see good done to your children. And God, we're so tempted as we beg and we plead and we pray and we fail to understand, we fail to see our own sins and we look at these things and we think that you're not for us. God, what's going on? You're not for us? And we need to understand that you are for your son and that you're for the gospel and that if you are for your children when your children are for the same things you're for. So God, we need to repent We need to repent of our sins. We need your fresh fire of refinement to come into us. We need a fresh 
move of your Spirit upon our church. We need you to do things in us that we can't do on our own. Oh God, as we've contemplated passages like, it's just coming to mind, Lord, right now, as we, we contemplated back when we were in the small group at Ada's house, and we thought about that you're a God who gives good gifts to his children. To be honest with you right now, Lord, it doesn't feel like you're giving many good gifts. But the problem isn't with you or your gifts. The problem was with us and our perspective. And we think you're giving snakes, when in reality you're giving good gifts. We just look at them and think they're snakes. We just look at them and think they're rocks. Forgive us for our sin. And forgive us for our failure. Forgive me for not leading this church in an Acts 2.42 way. And God, we can only trust, Lord, that you're doing a work here. And Lord, we want to submit ourselves to your discipline. However painful it might be, we submit ourselves to your discipline. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please stand if you would.